British Spy Stories, Season 1 Spy or Traitor? Episode 22 Linny stands in the kitchen, cutting vegetables and thinking about her husband. Stephen has seemed unhappy in the last few weeks, and it is starting to concern her. He has changed the things he does as a routine, and while she is not particularly driven by the importance of those daily cyclical actions for her own life, she knows that Stephen is. She hears him coming down the stairs and step into the kitchen. I was thinking, he says, would you ever want to move abroad? The already present expectation of change in him, that is in her mind, lays the ground for her muted reaction to the question. She looks at him quizzically. We've talked about this many times, darling. Would you want to, then? Maybe. She frowns and tips her head to one side to get a better view of his eyes and assess his emotion. Where? she says. I thought you loved it here. I do, he says. But maybe a change of scenery would do us good. You know, I want to retire one day. We've got enough cash to go and explore the world a bit. Travel, sure. I don't want to live abroad, though, she says. And I don't want to stop my court work. I haven't got a license for any other jurisdiction apart from the UK. He is quiet. She holds out her arm to him, but he doesn't respond, and she steps around in front of him and holds both of his hands. What is it, Stephen? Her grey eyes explore his face, for some clue of what has prompted this sudden change in his views after all this time. She can see he wants to talk. She knows how people are in court when they are bursting to relate inner thoughts that have clattered around inside their brain without an escape route. Anything I can do, she says. His eyes, that have been avoiding her gaze, finally look down to meet hers. I'm tired, Linny. Tired of it all. She squeezes his hands and her mouth forms the slightest of smiles. Do you want to leave your job? She says. I don't enjoy it like I used to. Then get out, she says. My work pays enough to keep the bills paid. Do something different or nothing. Do what makes you happy. Easier said than done, darling. You've been through all sorts of challenges and you're the optimist. Why is it different now? She says. I don't know, he begins. The same things come around year after year. Another new criminal gang or another new threat to our peace. We track them. We infiltrate them and more often than not we kill them. The remnants of the movement disperse into different cities, gather more recruits, convince others about the righteousness of their cause, and gradually form into some sort of organisation again. Then we find out, and it all goes in a big circle. I want to help, she says. I'm not sure you can. Let's sit down. It's in the oven now for half an hour. They walk through to the sitting room and sit on the sofa that is positioned to give a view of the garden. Tell me about your case, he says. I'm still being blocked by the cabinet office, to be honest. What did they say? Nothing. That's the point, she says with finality. 
I could tell the chap I saw was just playing with me. He was probably sent in to meet me and give the impression of action. Turns what you want from your witness, says Stephen, turning and giving her a wry smile. To tell the truth, that's all. You never did tell me any details. Security operations in Slovenia. Contracted private supplemental security resources, she says, quoting the legal documentation. Mercenaries, he says bluntly. How much are they used? More than I'd like. We just need this source in MI6 to talk to us, she begins. That source gave information to my client and can validate his evidence. Do you have a name? says Stephen. Petrov, she says. His body convulses instantaneously. His hand goes to his throat. He leans forward and his stomach retches, but no vomit comes. He is choking and coughing. She leans over him. My darling, what is it? Gabrielle gets into the bath in her room and inspects the bruising to her fingers and stomach sustained during the battle to get out of the casino in Monte Carlo. Two cuts are irritating her, one on her left hand and another further up, just beneath her elbow. She rests her head on the end of the tub and closes her eyes, thinking through everything that has happened in the days since she went off-grid. She is almost there as far as the mole is concerned. Most of the data that helps to prove the identity was uploaded by hands, and she has one more piece of the jigsaw to find and send to Sir Bernard, which she is hoping hands will also be able to help her with. She thinks about Murphy. Her relationship with him has always been strained, as Gabby has most of her work allocated by London's centre because she works across countries and Murphy only has control over operations entirely within Germany. When he arrived as head of Berlin station in MI6, they first met in a dingy cafe in South Berlin on a wet Tuesday afternoon. He was wearing a grey Macintosh and had a black fedora pulled down over his small head to protect him from the rain. Some people only join MI6 because of the romance of spying, but soon learn the reality of killing is more bloody and hell than the fiction portrays. Gabby was in full-time deep cover at the time, and couldn't tell Murphy any details of what she was doing. Her continual referral to London made the man gradually more and more frustrated, and they parted on bad terms, Murphy pulling up his collar as he ventured back into the drizzle. If Murphy is the mole, then it will be a surprise to her but there is no explanation for him not cancelling Max's kill order. Her phone thrums out a vibration where it rests on the towel next to her. She opens her eyes and rolls to the side to read the message. It is encrypted, and she pushes in the code, then scans what it says. Riverside is inviting her to meet him tomorrow at the observatory in Nice to talk. She knows the place. Its isolation makes her feel uneasy, but this may be the way to help her identify the mole if he has any information. The first set of data he gave her checked out. So he may be trustworthy. 
The sun scrapes out from the horizon and carves a low, intense light east of the E87 highway, where it crosses the border into Turkey, high up on the barren mountains of Malko Tarvono. The two lorries and four drivers are waved through after dropping cash into the hands of the border guards. They navigate the occasionally narrow and stony lengths of road in the hills, then drop down into the valleys of the Turkish plain and make good headway as the light builds for the day. They have planned to stop for twenty minutes in the village of Kirklareli, as they only have eaten in their cabs for the twenty-four hours since Ulrich saw them off on their journey from Russia. The tattered juggernauts pull off the highway onto a side road that leads to the village. The hiss of the brakes cracks through the silent streets as they draw to a halt outside of a shop with a large Pepsi billboard dwarfing its frontage. The men climb out, go into the café, and sit at the only table in the place. They order Sukuk and sit facing each other. They are all different heights and builds, but their clothes are consistently the colour of the dusty road. The oldest man, the large driver of the first wagon, says he hears something and stops their conversation mid-sentence. He stands and walks out to the road, then squints into the distance, but there is no one to be seen in either direction. As the other three men join him and start to tell him that it is nothing and that he is paranoid, a lorry growls around the final bend on the highway just before the village. It accelerates down the hill, then breaks and follows the route they took fifteen minutes ago. It approaches them along the side road. The lead driver gets more agitated and walks back towards his cab. This time his fellow drivers follow suit. The new lorry is all black, from the tar-coloured underbelly to its night-dark canopy and blacked-out windows that reveal nothing of the inside. It slows then stops fifty yards away from the café. But there is no movement. No one gets out. No lights come on. No sound radiates from the truck. The leading driver tells the other three men to get the guns from their cabs. They are surrounded by houses that sit either side of the highway, silent and still along the dead straight road. The leading driver takes his handgun and slowly, step by step, walks from the safety of his own lorry and into the no-man's land between him and the new vehicle. His colleagues are silent. They watch each other, cycling their view between each man and then back to the new truck. Six birds fly without a whisper above the scene in a triangle, heading south. And the men... wait... Suddenly, the place erupts with the sound of the bolts being hammered back on the doors of the black lorry. From inside, the blows strike metal four times, then a cascade of noise as one back door swings open, and a lone gunman with an Uzi, his face hidden with a balaclava, stands watching the men. For five seconds he stands stock still, and a slight breeze drifts up from the south behind him. It moves the open door by his side, 
Then the other back door slowly swings open, and three more armed, masked men stand beside him. They burst out and jump down onto the road, then run towards the drivers, who instinctively turn back and run behind their rigs. The first burst of automatic fire rips across the cab window of the leading vehicle. The main driver leans around his lorry and fires rapidly, hitting one guy in the shoulder. The attackers fan out across the length of the two lorries and skirt around to take up firing positions. All four of the drivers are firing. Two are ex-Russian military and are good shots. The other two are useless and both get hit within seconds. The first man is sent flailing into the lorry side, his arms a red mass of shredded flesh. The second is hit in the face and falls to the ground, his body quivering as his life slides away into the soil. The two remaining drivers take up positions at the front of their cab. One hits his target and an attacker collapses. They injure a second man in the leg, but their luck runs out and the remaining two attackers overwhelm them. The leading driver and his mate both fall onto the front of their vehicle from a sprawl of automatic bullets, their eyes momentarily staying alive after their hearts have stopped beating. The two attackers stand and celebrate their victory with short yelps and fist bumps, then tear off their balaclavas to get some cool air to their sweating skin. The more junior one grins at the bodies in front of him and turns back to his companion. And Larry Robinson grins right back. <laughs>